It's amazing what your brain can do when it picks up. Okay, I can pick up a piece of wood. A violin maker can pick up a piece of wood. And within three seconds, you have determined its moisture content, its density, its weight. Your fingernail will tell you immediately. If it's fighting back, it'll tell you that it... that. The structure of that wood combined and your brain is calculating the weight. It's absolutely amazing what your brain is doing when it picks up a piece of wood. And it's doing all these calculations in a very, very short period of time. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. My name is Joe McHugh, and for this two-part podcast, we get to spend time with Bruce Harvey. Bruce lives in the Pacific Northwest on Orcas Island, one of the San Juan Islands off the coast of Washington. And it is fair to say that there are very few people living on the planet today who are as knowledgeable and passionate about trees and the proper harvesting of tone wood as Bruce. As luck would have it, Paul and I spent a week in 2015 performing at libraries and schools in San Juan County, which enabled us to spend an afternoon with Bruce talking about wood and music and life. Unlike most Rosin the Bow interviews that take place in one location, this conversation began inside Bruce's house, where he talked about a maple tree he had recently harvested, showing us photographs as he explained the process. We then moved outside to a large shed stacked high with billets of aged spruce and maple and other wood, waiting for the skilled hand of the luthier to bring delight to our senses. We concluded the discussion back at our guest house. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I certainly did. I get emails all the time from folks who who have trees coming down in their yard or like they have a walnut tree and they've heard that it's valuable. And these folks in Olympia, right near Sleater Kenny Drive, emailed me and said they had a maple tree coming down and sent me a bunch of photographs. And for the first time in 35 years, I said, you know, this is something that could be worth doing. So I went down there and sure enough, there was this maple tree about three foot in diameter, maybe 40 inches, maybe, oh, I don't know, uh, 25 feet to the first branch and there they are hugging the tree before it gets taken down and it got taken down and the guy cut it into 14 inch lengths which violins need 15 inches so i was i literally cried i'm not exaggerating i cried when i saw what they done but i always need violin necks so i went down there and did a traditional I wanted to demonstrate how to process a maple tree without, for the folks who are building instruments who don't have a sawmill, uh, it is possible using a very small amount of tools to process a maple tree into perfectly usable pieces for violins, and this is a great example of it. Here's the 14-inch links, and I'm just cutting it exactly like firewood. You can see the split is real straight, which is kind of rare, but more importantly, it's just loaded with fiddleback. You can see the fiddleback right here. And um, so I processed the whole tree. This is, this is the way that it would have been processed in Stradivarius's day. I'm totally convinced of it. I know that's how they process their spruce. Because with, with spruce, you, can, you could look at a violin 
oh, probably as far away as my outhouse over there. And you can tell how much runout there is in the top. And by runout, I mean that whether or not that tree split straight or not. And we know that back in Strad's day, there's not a single violin that I could find that has runout. So we know that they hand split their wood, probably hand split it in the forest, probably hand split each individual half plate because you see a lot of mismatches in the tops. They, I think, might have intentionally mismatched the tops, put a wider grain on the base side, tighter grain on the treble. Stradivarius himself was a little anal about his wood, so you see a lot of book matches. But um, a lot of the other makers from that period, you see a lot of mismatches. So I think they probably hand split each individual piece in the forest. So I decided to go ahead and process this maple in the old style. This is a fro. Fro is used by shake rats to cut cedar shake blocks in the forest. I don't know if I have a picture of it in use here, but this is, I call this a two, so it's a two and a fro. But uh, anyway, you stick the fro in there and just give it a good yank and it, it splits off these these billets. This is a, a picture of the Coleman wax pot that I use. I, I like to wax right on site. It's an old habit I have, but it's if you're over in Idaho and you're going to be transporting the wood back to Washington, it'll it'll split on the trip over. It sounds like somebody making popcorn in the back of the van because the wood is splitting because it's so dry over there. So I like to have my wax pot going in the forest, coffee pot usually on the other side, and use 80% old candles, just wax, and 20% paint thinner, and that helps the wax to move, contract, and expand with the wood as it dries. And um, so in this case, I'm waxing right on site. So I'm dipping the ends of each piece, whether it's spruce or maple, in wax, and that prevents cracking on the ends which is really important because imagine a a 30 foot long tree if you take the attitude that oh I'll just add a couple inches you know and it'll crack and uh, well on 30 foot you're going to lose about two sections of, of of fiddles the two sections of wood that could become fiddles so you want to cut right to the to the length of the instrument and wax right on site and that really helps um, conserve the wood, make the, the wood go further. Less wasteful, let's put it that way. Hand splitting is very wasteful. It's a very wasteful way to process wood. You're probably 30, you're losing maybe a third of your wood because if you saw it, you can get right to the, to the instrument thickness, but hand splitting, you're kind of going oversized. It's, it's just a wasteful way of doing it, but I really enjoy it. This is the first time I've hand split a maple in 30 years, so. Uh, I did one like 30 years ago when I was first starting out, but this one was really fun to do. And so here's the hand split billets, and people kind of like working with hands. They definitely like working with hand split tops, but it's about one in 25 spruce trees split straight enough for instruments. Cedar, just about every single cedar tree split straight for putting shakes on top of roofs, which they're still doing. They're still putting guitar tops on top of roofs. It just drives me crazy that they're doing that, but they are. But spruce is another story. It's about one in 20. You can go to a sawmill and you could look at a big pile of logs and you'll find maybe two or three that split straight enough for, uh, for instruments.
Does anyone make violins using cedar for the tops? Um, they do, but it's amazing how the, the wood choices have held up for 300 years. Because if you make a, a cedar violin top, you could arguably say that it produces a, a tone that you like. But there's always an issue. And in the case with cedar, the, your edge work, the, the violin which hangs over the edge, is a little more prone to chipping off with cedar than with spruce. So spruce is a better choice in that application. And yeah, this is just pictures of the Olympia maple, loading it up. And why'd they cut it? Uh, it was really messy. That first picture really demonstrates that. You can see, you know, every year it's probably three foot thick of, um, here they have all these bags of, um, you know, yeah. This tree would have made bases. It it would have it would have made cellos for sure. It would have made bases, and they paid a considerable amount of money to have that taken out. I think four or five thousand dollars. They could have easily paid for the removal of the tree and then some, if it would have been left intact or cut to longer lengths. But so it's kind of the attitude. You know, we have these tree farms growing all over the United States where we take wonderful care of our trees and water them. And every town should have, and this is starting to happen. When I, when I first came up with the idea, I couldn't find anybody in the country that was doing it. But every town could support a person going around collecting these trees, milling them, and presenting them as the maple tree that grew on the corner of 4th and Main and Olympia and and um, flitch cutting it, leaving it, you know, the way that the rest of the world mills their wood, just go through the log, cutting three-inch thick boards, leaving the live edge on so that people make cabinets so the wood all matches perfectly. And, um, but the way we do it, we, do, we don't value these things, and this tree is a great example of that. This tree would have made probably, I don't know, 70 or 80 cellos and instead it's going it's making you know a couple hundred violin necks and it's a real heartbreaker because it's hard to find cello wood in maple and that would have been one right there so yeah with a light rain falling we donned our rain gear and made our way out to the woodshed so bruce could show us his newly acquired maple and explain the need to run fans to keep it dry uh so here's the the olympia maple and if when you when you mill this wood or if you hand split it, you need to dry it out and put fans on it immediately, or it'll fungus. Everybody has lost a tree to fungus, and it's one of the most heartbreaking things you can imagine. You know, it just starts turning brown, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So what I'm doing here is running fans through the through the wood. I got a de dehumidifier going on, and this wood is slowly drying out. But more importantly, it is not fungusing. And you have to do the same thing to the transcontinental spruces. That's Engelmann spruce, red spruce, European spruce. The sapwood will discolor and fungus if you don't put fans on it. Sitka spruce doesn't have sapwood that we're interested in, so you can just air dry Sitka naturally. But all the other spruces, the transcontinental spruces, you have to put fans on or you'll lose that as well. You'll lose the sapwood. So Is that because the uh, fungus is more particular to this area of the Pacific Northwest? 
No, it's all over the world. I mean, it, and, and the bugs too. It's real funny because the, the bugs and the fungus will only attack the sapwood. And, and I've seen like old cellos. I've seen old cellos that are 200 years old that, that the bugs got into the cello and 200 years later they only went after the sapwood. So there's something in the sapwood that they like and still 200 years later they still like it. Go figure. So even if it's a, after it's cured and everything, you yeah. still can have problems with bugs getting into your instrument. Well, they love the sapwood. And it, it's not only fiddles, it's furniture too. You can see bug damage in furniture that is only in one area of the, of the table because that's the sapwood. That's what they prefer even 200 years later. When you make violins, are you using sapwood? Yes. On European spruce, Engelmann spruce, Adirondack spruce, all these are called transcontinental spruces. And they're all sm relatively small trees compared to Sitka. Sitka, we do not use a sapwood because it's a different color. It's, it's a whitish, so it gets discarded. The others, it, they're relatively small trees, and that sapwood, when it dries, is indistinguishable from the heartwood. So, and, and every, every inch of wood on the diameter of the tree is really important for getting, let's say, guitars. That's why Adirondack spruce is so pricey, is because it's really, really hard to get trees large enough to cut guitar tops. You think, you know, guitars are eight and a half inches wide on the lower bout, you think you can get it out of a 20 inch tree. No, you need a 36 inch tree to get a lot of guitars. So every inch of wood is really, really critical, and that's why you try to retain that sapwood. So. Is there a difference between the sapwood and the heartwood as far as tone? That's a really good question. It, again, it's indistinguishable. You, you put your fingernail in both, it's the same. The color's the same once it dries out. The bugs can tell that it's sapwood. 200 years later, they will attack that sapwood, but I don't think that it... I think it's indistinguishable in every single way, including tone. So you could make a case for getting rid of the sapwood, but we really need that sapwood for getting instruments out. So it's a good question. I don't know. It's not, uh, I can't tell the difference between sapwood and heartwood once it's dry. See, now this is a great example of, of uh, the split. In, this is a piece of cedar, but you can... You can basically sight along that cedar and see that it's perfectly straight splitting. And just about every single cedar tree will split straight like that. Spruce, on the other hand, maybe 1 in 25, maybe 1 in 30, will split straight. And so that's the wood that we're after in, in spruce. And that's why spruce is a lot harder to find for instruments than cedar is. Cedar, you can get, this is right out of a shake mill. You know, they're sticking this stuff on the on the roofs of houses as we speak. This is where it all starts. Yes, it is. Bruce, this is where it all starts. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a pile of mandolin and fiddle backs. Uh, big leaf maple. Now, violin, violin guys do not like big leaf maple, and I kind of agree with them. Uh, big leaf is... is um, most violin makers are trying to replicate the wood that you see in an old, old Strad. And the wood that's in the, in the old Cremonese, the old Italian instruments, is Acer Pseudoplatinus. It's, it's called sycamore in England. It is not sycamore. It is, a, it is an Acer. It is a maple. If you went to England and asked for where, where is your maple pile, they would 
not know what you're talking about. It's called sycamore over there. So the Acer Pseudoplatinus, the grains can be and usually are a lot tighter than they are in big leaf maple. And they're also less prominent. Uh, the big leaf, the grain lines, as you can see here, are very prominent. And they're also very wide apart compared to what you see in a lot of European fiddles. Now, big leaf can look like European wood. We're talking strictly cosmetics here. Big leaf can look like European wood, but it usually doesn't. And that's why most violin makers tend to shy away from big leaf. Is it a faster growing tree? Yeah, it's faster growing, but it's the other properties, I think, that really turn people off. And we're talking about the high-end violin makers, the guys who are doing, like, bench copies of Strad, and they want that fiddle to have every single vibe of of the uh, the instrument they're copying. So my, they might as well use the European wood. The problem is the European wood costs usually about ten times as much as big leaf. So uh, uh, as far as mandolins go, there's a... There's a the Lloyd Lore mandolins were made out of uh, eastern, eastern North American maple, either red maple or sugar maple. And so when a lot of mandolin makers try to replicate the, the, the vibe of the wood, and they'll use uh, eastern maple. Big leaf is still, still used. It's, rel it's a relative newcomer on the... Uh, that's the thing that's kind of interesting about the, the tonewood world. When I first got into this, there was nobody else dealing tonewoods in North America. So, oh, there was Bill Lewis up in Vancouver, Canada. But a few of us got into it in the late 70s, and there was, there was no Engelman spruce on the market. Oh, there was one place in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Old World Spruce Company. They're the ones that introduced Engelman onto the market, and that was like 1976, something like that. So Engelman is a relative newcomer. Red Cedar is a relative newcomer. It was introduced by Bill Lewis in the 60s for uh, classical guitars. Red Spruce is a definite newcomer. The, the first guy I know that brought Red Spruce back onto the market was uh, Ted Davis in 1990, maybe, maybe 1989, and... Um, in 1980, you couldn't pick up the phone and order a red spruce mandolin top from anybody. So Ted Davis is the first one to bring that one back on the market, and now that's taken off like like uh, wildfire. And now a lot of people are cutting red spruce. A lot of people are cutting Engelman. Big Leaf is another one that is relatively new on the market. How many of those are making their way into fiddles or cellos or violas? Um. There's a lot of big leaf in in, uh, in all those instruments, especially cellos because of the size of the tree. There's some real high-end cello makers who are using big leaf. But European is the wood of choice. But, you know, a set of cello wood is going to cost you a couple grand. So compare that to two or three hundred for big leaves. So. And what about double basses? Double basses are, are uh, that's a real interesting subject for a lot of reasons. It's really hard to find bass wood. In any species. If I was making bases, the first thing I would buy is a sawmill. Because <laughs> you'd want, you want to, it's really, really hard to find base wood. So you'd run the sawmill until you saw the right uh, tree come through. I would, uh, the, the problem is not finding trees that will make bases. The problem is, is the trees get found and they get turned into guitars. Because that's where the market is. 
people think there isn't a, much of a market for bass wood, and compared to guitars, they're right. But it's really, really hard to find good bass wood, and um, to find bass wood at all. I mean, I'll, I'll occasionally run into a wide-grain Sitka, and I'll mill the whole thing into basses. I did that maybe 15 years ago, and I and I still have maybe one or two really. Oh, I, I have four or five really crappy <laughs> Sitka bass tops that have pitch pockets, and that's what's left over from that tree from 15 or 20 years ago. So it's all dribbled out. But it, I would, I, and I'm serious about that. If I was building bases, I would seriously consider getting a sawmill, milling my wood putting it aside and then then worry about building bases but it's it's not only is it hyper expensive when you do find it but it's it's really hard to find so how long does this wood have to cure um they say a year per inch in the furniture biz i'd probably double that for instruments uh, most instrument makers think ahead they get as far ahead as they possibly can you know, a lot of island makers will pay a lot of hard-earned money for seasoned wood, but the really hip guys will grab the high-quality stuff almost right off the sawmill and age it themselves, you know, and get far ahead. And that's that's a good strategy because your quality's higher. The wood hasn't been hanging around for 25 years while hundreds of luthiers look at it and decide, no, that's not what I want. So, yeah, old old great wood is very nice to have, but it's it's hard to come by. So most people try to get really great wood and then worry about the seasoning themselves. I love that idea. You're working in a, in a scale of time that yeah. this modern world's not working in. Right. It's, uh, you're thinking very far ahead. And, um, and also resource-wise, you can, I mean, there's a lot of folks that think that a lot of these trees aren't going to be around in 50 years, and they might be right. I mean, that's why I'm trying Whenever I see the stuff, I try to procure it and and set it aside somewhere. But um, it's as of now, it's you know like that that cedar I showed you was was a dug up from a bog, and it was in the mud. had It was three hundred percent moisture content when I got it. it. Took three years for the water to slowly evacuate out of it. So it's. I like to reclaim wood. I, I think I've cut down maybe five trees in 35 years. All maples that had to come down anyway. So I've never cut down a conifer. Let me think if that's true. That is true. I've never cut a conifer down, spruce, cedar, or anything else. Windfalls. Leaving Bruce's woodshed, we drove over to our guest house on the other side of Orcas Island to continue the interview. We set up the microphones in the upstairs bedroom, making ourselves comfortable in a pair of ancient wooden chairs that squeaked like trees in the wind. Well, uh, my mom's side of the family came from Finland, and my dad's side came from Scotland. I'm third generation Californian, so, um, uh, yeah, and I grew up in, born in Northern California and grew up in Southern California, grew up surfing, played surf music when I was Saw, saw Dick Dale at the age of 15, and that kind of changed everything. So I played surf music all throughout high school and partially into college. Kind of gave up music uh, when I went to college. When I went to college, I said, well, I'll give up surfing, give up music, and go to school. And 
the Almond Brothers came to town one day, and I wound up sitting in with the Almond Brothers, and that changed everything. So I went back into playing music. And uh, that's kind of how I got into bluegrass, because I went to school at UC Berkeley, which was a, there was a huge bluegrass scene going on there in the early 70s. Uh, Joe Val, and then people would come to town, Bill Monroe, and oh, the Kentucky Colonels, and those folks, and so I'd go see them, and that's how I got into, into bluegrass, and that's how I got into building mandolins. One thing led to another, and um, I built my first mandolin when I was in Berkeley in the mid-70s. And then when I moved up here to Orcas Island, I was building mandolins. I was a lousy mandolin maker, but I started cutting wood for my own mandolins because couldn't, you couldn't buy wood at that time. There wasn't anybody to... There was no ton wood businesses, period. So I started looking around and realized there was wood everywhere. So that's how I got into the ton wood business, gave up building mandolins. So back in the day, you had companies like Gibson or Martin, and they just procured their own wood so there was no place for the independent maker really to get tone wood no there was um mr lewis i'm i'm having a hard time remembering his first name even though i told you <laughs> a little while ago yeah there was a company called lewis in in vancouver canada and i think gurian was was maybe starting up right around then but there was really no uh, there were there were companies on the east coast metropolitan Music company supplied woods. A couple other company, yeah, there were people people supplying woods, but it was all European wood. There was no domestic wood whatsoever. There was a guy named Fred Meyer. Believe it or not, his name was Fred Meyer. He was a school teacher up on um, Prince of Wales Island in Alaska, and so he he realized that uh, there was a lot of spruce going to waste up on Prince of Wales Island, namely these bridges that were getting taken apart. And back in the, in the 50s, they would just lay four giant spruce trees across the creek and then corduroy them crosswise with some smaller trees, and that was a bridge. And in the 70s, they started taking these bridges out, and they weren't really good for running through a mill because they were full of metal and gravel. So he he got them for free and hand split the wood he was the first person i knew of who offered hand split wood religiously that's all he offered he didn't even have a sawmill so he hand split wood and sent it all over the world and i i wound up going there and staying with him for a summer helped him build a boat and cut a bunch of wood that was like in 19 maybe 81 right around in there um so anyway, I started my company in 79, I believe it was, 1980, and I was pretty rabid. I would drive, I would literally drive all over the country. I would get a piece of wood in the mail, and then a couple days later be off in my pickup driving to Maine to get the tree, stuff like that. So I was pretty rabid. I had a mill on the East Coast. I'd go to Europe every year. Now I'm not so rabid. You do anything for that length of time, and you lose your enthusiasm so <laughs> anyway so tell me a little bit more about how that worked i didn't under, quite understand that so somebody might have a tree in maine or some faraway place but they send you some part of the wood physically and you see it yeah maybe a violin maker might run into a, a, an adirondack spruce in maine and and uh cut a chunk out of it and send it to me for evaluation and i looked at it and said wow this is this is uh, special, and 
would drive across country. It was worth it to drive across country and pick up a tree or two. So, and I'd ship some home. But yeah, I would do stuff like that all the time. Uh, there was no place in the country that that I wouldn't drive to to pick up a load of wood. So, and it was worth doing and fun. So, I did that you know, seven or eight times maybe. Uh, the first thing you do when you walk up to a, a potential candidate for tone wood, whether it's spruce or maple, is you decide what instrument it wants to be. And there's any number of criteria that decide that for you. Size, obviously. Is there color in the wood? Is there a bastard grain in the wood, which is a very thick graining in the wood, which is cosmetically unattractive? Is there rot in the wood? Is it is the tree have a rotten center? So you, you look at the tree and the tree will tell you what instrument it wants to be. You don't tell it. So let's say you walk up to a Sitka spruce that's six foot in diameter and it has, you know, a good 15 inches of clear wood on the outside. And then you would cut it. You would say, okay, this is basis. So you would cut it to, let's say, 50 inch lengths. Bases are actually right around 48, so 50 inches. There's a little leeway there because some base makers do make a larger pattern. Unlike violin makers who are all within one millimeter of each other. But I would cut 50 inch lengths and then I would split that just like doing firewood. Split it on quarter and split out the large pie shaped wedges. And hopefully that base tree is not too far from the road if you were splitting up a windfall but in some cases I've carried out pieces like that as much as uh well I haven't carried bases out that far but certainly violin wood I've carried out a mile if they're in the middle of the forest but most times uh you can drive close to them and and uh, carry the wood out are there certain makers you have in mind occasionally when you're looking at oh yeah um well I could tell you well, I could tell you a zillion stories, but there's one story. Um, I was making a trip to the East Coast, and I was driving back, and I was coming through Iowa, and I stopped at a motel in Iowa City called the Sunset Motel. And I noticed out in front of the office there was a stump, and it was huge. It was four foot in diameter, and it, I could tell right away that it, it, that it was maple, and I could tell right away that it was heavily figured, and I could tell that it was this bubbly figure that I love in silver maple and said, wow, I'm glad I wasn't here when that came out or I'd be spending the next few days in, in, uh, Iowa city. And I went back to my room and there was the tree, you know, it had just been cut down. And I said, Oh boy. So, uh, it was actually the most strenuous work I've ever done in ever. And that's not exaggerating. The, it was about a hundred degrees out. The humidity was, spectacular and I wasn't used to that humidity and I was in good shape back then and it just just absolutely uh I took a shower I probably took 20 showers that day and watched several innings of a cub game on television but I wound up getting a substantial amount of that tree and it was this bubbly figure that you see in silver maple you see it in Gibson guitars from the the 30s and 40s oddly enough real bubbly figure and there's one viola maker in England who really wanted some lightweight bubbly wood so basically the lion's share of that 
tree went his way. And and I knew as I was milling it up that that's who it was for. So yes, uh, sometimes you see very unusual patterns in wood and you think of a specific maker. Um, bear claw, spruce is a great example. When I first started doing this back in the late 70s, you couldn't give away bear claw in spruce. It's a, it's a genetic figuring that's um, back then was considered to be a defect. Um, kind of hard to describe. The reason it's called bear claw is because on the cambium, it looks like a bear has clawed it. You know, it looks exactly like a bear has sat there and sharpened his claws on the outside of the tree. But it's it's a genetic figuring that happens. Um, it's pretty rare. Maybe one in 50 trees has bear claw in it. And I love it. And gradually, um, throughout the 80s, bear claw got uh, transformed from being a wood that was con considered to be defective into a wood that was sought after. And now it's highly sought after. And there were certain makers that, that helped to do that. Dana Bourgeois comes to mind when he was working with Schoenberg, featured bear claw in all those guitars. A lot of violin makers, you see it a lot, a lot in old um, uh, Cremonese violins, you see bear claw. I think people loved it. It's called maschio in Italian. The belief was that it only occurred in the male trees. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a very beautiful figuring. And um, there were people, uh, makers who were really looking for high quality bear claw back in the 80s when it was unavailable. And so, yeah, that's another example of when I'd run into a bear claw tree, I'd bring it home. And so now it's, you know, thanks to a lot of woodcutters and a lot of makers, it's turned from a defect, a defect into something it's sought after. While we're at it, let's listen to a short segment of music featuring Bruce playing a mandolin that he made and one for which he found the wood. We finish part one of this podcast with a discussion about the mythology of tonewood, particularly why the grain of certain maple trees develops a figure that both captures and enchants the eye.
In part two of this podcast, Bruce and I talk about the special wood used to make violin bows. He also talks about the challenges to the tone wood industry from the growing practice of poaching trees, both here in the United States and around the world. And there's this story about harvesting wood up in Alaska while dining on oysters. It's a good yarn, so make sure you join us. Some of the mythology around uh, why the curl shows in certain trees and not others, and you, you sort of were dismissive of most of that mythology, but give me some of the idea of some of the mythology you've heard over the years and whether you, you know, and then oh, what you think of it. Oh, yeah, there's some... Um, the problem is a, lot, is a lot of this mythology gets into print by some people who are considered to be experts in, in the field. I'm not dismissing them, but I kind of am dismissing that theory that you hear a lot that the reason that fiddleback exists in maple trees is because it grows on a hillside and it's the stresses that that caused that maple to to form the curly figure. I'm almost 100% sure that it's not stresses, that it's genetics. That you could genetically clone these trees and every single one of them will have fiddleback. I'm convinced of that. There are some... Uh, there have been some ex- experiments done in the past on other trees. I know Koa in Hawaii, there's... Um, some people who've experimented with genetically cloning curl in koa. But I'm really convinced that you can grow curly, a whole field of curly maple if you wanted to. Take your favorite tree, do some air layering, or it would have to be a direct clone. You don't want to take seeds, but uh, take a direct clone off that tree and plant them, and I think you could, you could grow figured maple successfully. People, people have done this with poplar. When you're driving through the Skagit Valley on your way home, you'll see these windbreaks of Lombardi poplar. They're very distinctive trees that look like a torch. You'll see 20 or 30 of them in a row. Well, farmers, it's very easy to propagate poplar. You just go to your neighbor's uh, poplar tree and snap off 30 twigs, put them in pots or put them right in the ground, and they'll take off. And, and um, you'll see windrows in every single tree has exactly the same conformation. They look exactly the same, and if you were to go look at them, if they had fiddleback, every single one would have fiddleback. So I think that fiddleback gene gets carried along with, uh, uh, if you're genetically cloning a tree, that fiddleback will come along for the ride. And that's proven in walnut. There's an area in California that's famous for its claro walnut. And that gene came along with the grafting stock. They grafted all those walnuts around Chico, and every single one of them has fiddleback in it. So I, I think that the genetics is the answer as to why fiddleback exists and not stresses on the trees. The figures in the wood just make the violence so stunningly beautiful. What role do you think it plays in the tone? None. It would be hard to prove one way or the other. It'd be impossible to prove. I mean, wood is such a... You could take apart a tree and wood from one side of the tree might be entirely different from the other side of the tree. If the tree was off-center, one side of the tree is going to be tighter grain than the other side. So, to, you know, there's absolutely no way to prove that one way or the other that I can think of. 
you could theorize about it all day long. My gut feeling is that great fiddles can be made out of very plain looking maple. And I do love spectacular wood and instruments, but I've over the years I've really gained a fondness for the elegance uh, of and the practicality of some well-chosen plain maple, for instance. I love seeing it, old Cremonese instruments with a, a, just a nice quartered piece of unfigured maple. I, I just find that to be refreshing, but I think that's because I've chased the figured stuff for so long that I've gained a real appreciation for unfigured wood, but that's just me. I, I appreciate modern violin makers who who choose to go down that road of of maybe choosing a piece of maple for its weights and rather than its gaudy appearance. I mean, curl can be very gaudy. It's absolutely beautiful, but it can be very over the top in terms of its look. And I just there are modern makers who will build with uh, lightly figured wood or or choose wood for other reasons than it's figuring. And I appreciate that a lot. Do they pick it because literally they can hold up a piece of wood and, and tap it? Is that... It's amazing what your brain can do when it picks up. Okay, I can pick up a piece of wood. A violin maker can pick up a piece of wood. And within three seconds, you have determined its moisture content, its density, its weight... Your fingernail will tell you immediately if it's fighting back. It'll tell you that it that the structure of that wood combined and your brain is calculating the weight. It's absolutely amazing what your brain is doing when it picks up a piece of wood. And it's doing all these calculations in a very, very short period of time. I mean, people measure densities. They'll dip wood in a bucket of water and, and do the calculations to where you can you can figure out the density of the wood. But it's really remarkable what your brain can do. Your brain will say, no, this is too heavy. Your fingernail tells you it's too soft. Your, the, the temperature of the wood tells you the moisture content. It, it's really amazing how the brain is calculating that piece of wood as far as whether it'll make a good instrument or not. You know, spectacular. Um, Have you ever worked on a project uh, where the whole family of instruments was made from the same tree? Yeah. For competitions, whether it's uh, the Trianale in, in Italy or the VSA competitions, you do enter quartets, and you are judged on materials. And so people, you know, aesthetically would like to have the quartet made from the same tree. And it is possible, it's hard to imagine this on radio, but imagine cutting a spruce tree and you're looking at the rings, and that tree is off-center. So uh, it's highly off-center. That, that center is, let's say, kind of way up, considerably off-center. Well, that, that section of wood, that there's one section of wood that's going to be much tighter grain than the other section of wood, which is looser grain. So and also it leaves you more room in the looser-grained side of the tree to get your cellos out of. Cellos want to be looser grain, violas want to be looser grain, violins want to be tighter grain. So it is possible to supply wood for a quartet from the same tree that the violins 
are made from tighter grain wood and the viola and the cello from looser grain wood. So that's an example of, of um, and yet it's all from the same tree. And people go, well, how, how can that be? This is tight, this is loose. Well, that's how it is. And, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, the reason that spruce tree is tight grain is because it grew up in the mountains. Well, maybe the tree was off center and so it's tighter grain. Or you can hand them two pieces of wood and say, where did this grow? Oh, this, this grew higher on the mountains and on the eastern slope. This is obviously lower. Well, no, it's from the same tree. So a lot of factors in, in terms of why wood looks the way it does. But I love the genetics, yeah. the fact that you would yeah. have the same genetic, it's the same family, really. Yeah. yeah, and I could see, you know, I think that's kind of cool, you know, aesthetically, is that I've, I've supplied many quartet. Somebody ordered a quartet of wood, and they wanted all the maple to be from the same tree and all the spruce to be from the same tree. So I think that's kind of cool. So and then you tell them about the tree, you know, where the tree came from and where, the two trees, the maple and the spruce, and... and uh, it's kind of cool. I enjoy that kind of a challenge. Enjoy trying to, and and also with the advent of bench copies. And what a bench copy is 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 um, oh somebody in an orchestra now is playing a fiddle that they bought back in the '60s for 15 grand or something, which would have bought you a house in the '60s. It's not like it's an in, insignificant amount of money, but then they'll wake up now. And realize that it, that it's might be worth millions, and would cost twenty five grand a year to insure. So there's a lot of incentive to produce a bench copy. Uh, what a bench copy is is where the violin is actually residing on the bench. The maker has the luxury of of um, looking at it while he or she makes that fiddle. And so I'll get even to this day I'll get faxes where they'll lay the um, the fiddle on a copy machine or whatever and, and or snap a picture of the wood you know anyway get pictures of the wood so you you can copy the spirit of the wood you're not you're not trying to to anally reproduce it exactly but you're trying to get in the spirit of the wood the same cut the same graining it might have a, a weird little knot in the upper bout or something and you might try to replicate that but it's kind of fun to pick the wood that's going to go into a violin that is attempting to replicate an, an old Cremonese instrument. So that's kind of fun to do. So again, like if I go, you know, somebody will send me that and I don't have the wood that, that looks exactly like that. But if I run across it in the sacks, I'll pull, set it to the side and send it on as a candidate for, for a bench copy. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For information concerning this podcast and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We do like hearing from you, so please send us an email. And if you have a good story about a violin, cello, or other bowed-stringed instrument, we'd like to hear that too. 
and we hope you keep listening. Thank you.